In our message this morning, we continue our series on the life of King David, a man after God's own heart, and we are are in part nine. The title for our sermon this morning is The Good, the Bad and the Ugly Side of Compromise, based on 1 Samuel chapter 27 to 28 verse 2. And then our last passage will be from chapter 30. So in our series on the life of King David, last week we saw how he sought revenge on an ungrateful fool who had insulted him. But God used the fool's wise wife to intervene and prevent needless bloodshed by pleading David with David to resist the urge to purge her whole household. Uh, now, this morning we, we turn to another set of episodes in David's life which run over a few chapters. The story in and of itself is, is not pretty, um, especially in chapter 27, there is no mention of God. And here, uh, the author of 1 Samuel largely avoids giving us a, a moral opinion on the story, but simply tells of the events as they appear, and leaves it up to the the reader, uh, you and me, to decide if it's good or or bad or indeed ugly. Now, for us who live 3,000 years later after these events, it is easy, I suppose, to be critical of them without considering and taking into account the, the actual difficulties that they faced at that particular time that they found themselves in. Because from the comfort of our own lounge, we can easily offer simplistic answers to the problems with 21st century eyes. I say this because there's a lot of historical revisionism going on at present regarding the the evils and the injustices of the past. So what, what happens uh, right around the world is that they tend to pull down statues, statues uh, defacing memorials, um, and unfortunately they, they do the same with Scripture. But the stories are here, so we can learn from their triumphs and also learn from the time that they fell into a hole and, and made mistakes. So when we come to David and and the predicament that he found himself in, there is both sympathy for for his plight, but also criticism for some of the decisions that he made. We judge his actions, good or bad or, or otherwise, on the ultimate consequences of those decisions. And with the benefit of hindsight, we know how their story ended. But what would faith be like if we were there? Let's extend it a bit further. What does faith look like for us today? How will our story end? Generations in the future, when they look back and they say, well, they did good, they did bad. How will they judge us? Ultimately, the ultimate judge, of course, is God. So let us get into our passage this morning. Uh, First of all, the good from verses 1 
to fall the good, the good side of compromise, that is. But David thought to himself, one of these days I shall be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. And then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel and I will slip out of his hand. So David and his 600 men with him left and went to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. And David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, Abigail of Carmel, uh, the widow of Nabal. And when, when Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Now David is there pondering his situations. For nearly 10 years now, he has been on the run from Saul. We can hardly blame him for feeling down. For the, all this time, he's worn out. In his state of mind, he, he reaches, unfortunately, this hopeless conclusion. One of these days, Saul is going to get to me. This is the same David that was so confident that God would protect him in chapter 24, verse 15. And, and, and last week we saw how he was reassured of his destiny by Abigail in chapter 25, verse 29. His conclusion, because of how he feels, because of his thought process, is to flee to the land of the Philistines, to find safety. Sadly, how he came to that decision, in that process of coming to that decision, there were no prayers to God for wisdom. There was no appeal to prophets or priests for divine guidance. This was all his idea. This was all in his head. Now, as we recall, not, that, not all that long ago, David sought sanctuary in Gath and averted disaster by behaving like a lunatic. And one would have thought that he had learned his lesson. That was a close call. And yet here he is. But this time he's not alone. He goes there with his two wives, 600 men, plus all their families, as well, quite an entourage. And, but David was right about one thing though. When Saul hears that David has fled to Gath, he no longer searches for him in the enemy's territory. So on the surface it appears that his escape has been su successful, that his decision was good. But at what cost? Someone said, Compromise is simply changing the question to fit the answer. And in verses 5 to 7, Then David said to Achish, If I have found favour in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of your country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. And David lived in Philistine territory for a year and four months. David, his 600 men, families, would have, as they went to Gath and stayed there, I don't know, a bit of time, it would have been a logistical 
quite a logistical impact on the town, on the city of Garth. You know, the locals would have said, well, who are these foreigners? Who are these refugees who who have moved into the area? For this reason, David asked the chiefs for a city where he and his followers can live out of the way for all, you know, of their own. It seems a reasonable request, and so a chief gives him uh, Ziklag. This city was about, uh, I don't know, 40 kilometres, 25 miles to, to, the, to the south of Garth, somewhat out of sight from the, from the Philistines' perspective, and close, closer to the Israelite border. So it gives David and his followers a place of their own in an area where David's activities will not be monitored by the king, King Achish. As you read the Bible, especially in Genesis and Exodus and other places, this is, this is not the first time that God's people, for, for one reason or another, have wandered outside the promised land. But it's hard to find lasting positive results from the Israelites who sought salvation this way. We have the stories of Abraham and Isaac who went down to Egypt and then Lot who went to the outskirts of Sodom and Gomorrah. At the beginning things were sweet. And even Jacob and his sons as they settled in the land of Egypt, at the beginning things were sweet. But then they turned sour. It was not their home. It was not the promised land. God's word was the children of Israel were not to mix with the surrounding nations. The warning was given, but they still tried. and They still thought it was best. And unfortunately, disaster was the ultimate result. David knew all his history. And he did it anyway. So it's hard to see what ultimate blessing could result from David's escapade into enemy territory. Now let's go and see the next heading in the verses 8 to 12 to the bad. So we've gone from the good, now the bad. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gersites and the Amalekites. Uh, from ancient times these people had lived in the land extending to Shur in Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle and donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. And when Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev in Judah, against the Negev in Jeramo, and against the Negev of Kenites. These are all in Israel's territory, these towns just here. He did not leave a woman or man alive to be brought to Garth, for he thought they might inform on us and say this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. And Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. Like we said, On the surface, it looks like David made a wise decision. 
You could even say that God is blessing David for going to the Philistines. For over a, he's been there for over a year now and probably felt vindicated as things are going really well. But slowly but surely things start to sour. There is here there is a warning for us in this. One small act of spiritual compromise, a, a tiny, even a tiny step in the wrong direction, will set you up to take, will make it easier for you to take the next step sooner or later, and you're going to be further and further away from where you should be. Now, David uses Ziklag as his base of operations. Uh, from here, he and his merry men, a bit like Robin Hood here, they go about the area raiding the cities and camps of the, Is- the, Israeli- the Israelites' enemies. And he's raiding the raiders and leaving no survivors. So no one can talk. And after every raid, David reports back to Achish and gives him a portion of the spoils. And Achish thinks that he can trust David because he thought you know, that David was actually killing the Israelites. But he wasn't. He's giving a different report. The people David attacked were inhabitants of the land whom God had originally directed Moses to destroy. And this is what we must understand here. So they were part of God's directive as they conquered the promised land. They should have been destroyed already. But no, they were still there. So, yes, David might be doing the right thing. You know, getting rid of Israel's enemies. But he's doing it for all the wrong reasons. He's actually attacking these people, not in obedience to God's command... Because if he was obeying God, he would have had to destroy the livestock as well. Nothing could survive. That was the command. So he attacks them more for pragmatic reasons, such as providing food for the families. He kills all the people, leaving no survivors, because it is the only way he can continue his deception. As they say, dead men tell no tales. But David is also ingratiating himself, according to chapter 30, verses 26 to 31. He's also ingratiating himself with the Israelites by sharing some of the spoils with them. So there is a duality here. Uh, David reports his activities to King Achish and what And and what he actually does is something very different. We might say that David is playing both ends against the middle. He's living a double life with respect to God and with respect to the world. He thinks he's getting away with it. But he won't, not for very long. This is why Paul reminds us In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, it says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. 
please, we have to understand this. There are two kingdoms at war here against each other. This has been going on since the garden. It will not finish until revelations come to its fruition and the ultimate return of our Lord. There are two kingdoms at war. David could not maintain his allegiance to the Philistines without abandoning his loyalty to God. He thought he could, but he couldn't. You might even, you see, you and I might get present and temporal salvation from the Philistines, from the enemy, but future and eternal salvation is only from God. It's, it's, if you seek salvation from this world, from our leaders, our politicians, from doctors, and the advice that they're continually giving us, if you are going to find salvation from your wealth, from your savings, from your super, if you're going to try and find your, your happiness and salvation from pleasure and even from your friends, they're all temporary. Because as a believer, as a true believer, you will not be able to live the life of faith that is required of those who have the eternal hope in Christ. That's our ultimate source of life, eternal hope. Now we come to our next heading. So we've looked at the good, uh, the bad, and this is the ugly side from chapter 28, verses 1 to 2. In those days the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel and Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. And David said, then you will see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now, it might not appear here, but this is where things are getting ugly for David. Where when he is ordered to join the enemy's side. And up to this point, the double life of compromise had seemed to be working. And when Achish said to David, you and your men will accompany me in the army, unfortunately the chickens finally are coming home to roost because the people that they're supposed to be fighting are the Israelites. What's worse, he names David as his personal bodyguard. Now, if if the Philistines win the battle against the Israelites, it will be the bodyguard's duty to kill the defeated king. Who was the king of Israel? It was Saul. David will be forced to do the one thing he has refused to do, which is kill Saul. You can see the problem here. David never intended for this to get this messy. He never wanted to go in this deep. But now he's faced with the full results of his compromise. And unless God intervenes, he will be forced to fight against his own people, against his future kingdom. But you see, that's what happens whenever you live a double life, isn't it? 
Before long, you find yourself in too deep, too deep to get out. By now, David is too indebted to Achish to even think about backing out. He can't do it. Only a last second intervention prevented him from joining the attack on Israel. And this is what happened in verse 4. But the Philistine commanders were angry with Achish and said, send the man back that, that, that he may return to the place you assigned him. He must not go with us into battle or he will turn against us during the fighting. How better could he regain his master's favour than by taking the heads of our own men? It often happens, and we've brought this topic before um, in, in another message, it often happens that when the child of God defects to the other side, he discovers that the other side simply cannot trust him. This happened to David last time he was in guard. As they say, deja vu all over again. This is because the child of God is always the child of God. The believer who cuts himself from the people of God soon discovers that the people of the world don't want him either. So he has to do what? He has to earn their trust by going beyond. This is why some of the most strident opponents of the gospel, they actually, many of them actually grew up and once lived as committed Christians. What happened? Somewhere along the line they started to drift and compromise and ended up leaving the faith altogether. But not only that, to prove their defection, they didn't just become atheists, but they became anti-theists. Not enough to stop believing in God, but you have to earn your position in the other side by being anti-God and against his children. Some of you might know that Stalin actually started out in the priesthood before he became the despot that he did. In chapter 30, verses 1 to 6, David and his men reached Ziklag on the third day. Now the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag. They had attacked Ziklag and burned it and had taken captive the women and everyone else in it, both young and old. They killed none of them, but carried them off as they went on their way. And when David and his men reached Ziklag, they found it destroyed by fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. So David and his men, they wept. They wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. David's two wives had been captured, Ainuam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him. Each one was bitter in spirit because of his sons and daughters. But David found strength in the Lord his God. So there they, David and his men, they were about to go into battle, but the, the other armies, they said, we can't have these Israelites fighting with us. They're going to betray us. So 
The chief says, mate, you're going to have to go back home. Sorry. So after three days' journey, probably relieved uh, that they didn't have to fight their own fellow countrymen, and they're nearing home. Nice to come back home, but what if there is nothing left to come home to? That's exactly what happened here. While they were gone, the Amalekites came and took their wives, children, all their possessions and burned the village to the ground. Nothing is left. You see, the Amalekites were part of those villages that David had used to raid when he was playing the, that little game of Robin Hood and pretending to attack Judah. Remember, David not only raided those villages, he also killed the people to keep them from talking. Now the Amalekites are returning the favour. Except, and this is God's intervention, I am sure, except that they were more gracious than David because at least they didn't kill any of them. Um, David and his men obviously weren't to know that. So they wept and they wept until they could weep no more. And soon after, as, as happens in, in grief, it tends to happen that their sorrow turns to anger. They need to find the culprit. Whose fault is this? Why have we got this mess around us? And their anger turned towards their leader. King David, well, not king yet. So much so that they wanted to kill their once glorious leader. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? We've seen this couple, the last couple of weeks in, in, in Australia and New South Wales and Sydney in particular that when COVID was under control last year, people were, were praising their leaders because of their wisdom for keeping us safe. And the moment that it started, second, third wave started spreading once more, guess what happens? All the knives are out towards our leaders for their lack of judgment and their wrong decisions. Just wondering, who wants to put their hand up and be a leader at this, at this particular time in history? When the populace is on edge, they're nervous, they're annoyed, worn down, they've had enough. Obviously, the media and the population, they, they always be looking for someone to blame. Maybe it's a good time to just remember and to, to pray for our leaders here. You might not like them. That's not what the Bible is saying when it gives us the instruction. But there is honour and respect that you have to give them because of their position that they, they hold. I'm not making this up. This is what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This is what the Apostle Paul says to us. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, including your health officials. 
that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. I'll repeat that, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. That's what we need to pray constantly for them, that God gives them the wisdom as they lead us, not just here in Australia, but around the world, wherever you might be listening, pray for your government, for your leaders, wherever they may be. And lastly, the way back in uh, that last bit from, from verse 6 that we just read. I love this. He says, but David found strength in the Lord his God. At the beginning of our passage this morning, at the beginning of, of, of chapter 27, at the beginning it said, you know, we, we asked that, how will our story end? And we started with David thought to himself, right? That's how the problem started, right? And we end up here. David found his strength in the Lord because our end is God himself. This is how ultimately it will end. You should realise by now that God's people are less than perfect, obviously. But one of the things that set David apart from all the other leaders past and and present, why he was known as a man after God's own heart is that despite his downfalls, and they were big downfalls, despite his downfalls, he always repented. He always came back before God. That was the difference. Last week when Abigail intervened, he repented. Here when his own people are about to stone him, he knows where to find his strength. It wasn't in his friends. It wasn't in his skills. It wasn't in his own ideas and decisions. Because, you see, all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put David together again. But God could, because he was God's child. He was God's anointed. Now, there are many watching who might think that, uh, you know, you have it all together. I'm okay. But let me just say that if a man after God's own heart didn't have it all together, you don't either. None of us do. There is only one perfect one who lived and he is our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it is only by his grace that you and I can stand. Let me plead with you to let go of your pride, come to him. And it is only by his grace that we are restored after we have fallen. And as we turn to God that we are able to take hold of his grace which he freely gives to those who call on his name. And we finish with these words from our first reading. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And may God be with us. Amen.